0: This is 50 Feminist States, a road tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Fruby, and this week we're in Arkansas.
1: From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to the skies of Montana, I want. Feminist
2: state And when you hear the call You know so well Sisters began
0: Hi Amelia here. Welcome back to the third season of the 50 Feminist States podcast. This week we're in Arkansas. Before we get to today's very special interviews, there are two of them, Marty and Hannah. Just a reminder that we are hosting a giveaway throughout season three where we'll be giving away a whole bunch of fancy 50 Feminist States swag. All you have to do is rate and review the podcast on iTunes and then send us a screenshot with your name as proof. So go ahead and head into the iTunes podcast app or find us online and give us that rate and review. Your help will hopefully boost us in the uh, podcast charts on various platforms, get some more listeners and help more people find the amazing conversations that we're having here at 50 Feminist States. For today's episode, I spoke with two really wonderful women in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I was personally really excited to go to Fayetteville because I grew up visiting northwestern Arkansas um, every few years. My grandfather lived in Bella Vista uh, until he passed. And I have these kind of funny and idyllic memories of going there. It's really beautiful. It's close to the Ozarks. Um, there are so many trees and mountains. My grandparents had these two pet poodles that really terrified me, but I still liked seeing them. Um, so I have all these funny memories of this part of the country that I find most people have never been to. And I was excited to revisit that place. You know, if you've listened to these episodes before, you know, an important part of this project for me is always just discovering what draws people to an area. And it's always particularly exciting when it's an area that I've also been drawn to for various reasons throughout my life. So it was really great to head back to Northwestern Arkansas. And it was also particularly great to speak to. Marty and Hannah, who we'll be hearing from today. And it felt particularly great because of kind of how I got in touch with them. So a few nights before I was leaving for the season three road trip, I had dinner with a friend in Chicago and she was asking me about which states I was going to and which ones I didn't have interviews for. And Arkansas was one of the states that I didn't have anybody confirmed for. So I kind of said this and she was like, oh, I have a friend from Arkansas. I will have to put you in touch with them. So my friend gives me their friend's phone number. I send the text message. And I'm just like, hi, I'm going to Arkansas. I need to find some really cool feminists to talk to. Do you know anybody? And that person is like, well, I don't really know, but I know somebody who will know. So they gave me another number and I text that number. And then that person is like, this is such a cool project. And you're coming during like the craziest, busiest season because we have this huge festival going. So I unfortunately don't have time to talk to you. But I know tons of amazing women who you should definitely speak to. And so she put me in touch with Hannah and Marty. And that's how I ended up talking to them for this episode. And it just felt like such a perfect example of grassroots community knowledge and the ways in which feminists can find each other. And I was just so happy that it worked out that way. So that I've said all that, this week we're going to hear from Marty Lane, who is a graphic design professor at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. I had an amazing conversation with her about what I would call feminist pedagogy and mentorship strategies throughout her career and in her work. And then we also talked about some of the work that she's done for social change through her work with Moms Demand Action and designing for political campaigns, as well as a project she did with her students to design some materials for the Marshallese population in Northwest Arkansas. Uh, We're also going to hear today from Hannah Withers, who is one of the co-owners of Maxine's Tap Room in Fayetteville, which is the second oldest bar in the city. And it was founded by a woman named Maxine in the 1950s. And it has this amazing story um, about a woman run business, like a legacy business that Hannah and her husband then um, purchased after Maxine's death. And we talk a lot about the work of running a business, the power of feminine and feminist legacies. And end up kind of having this incredibly candid conversation about contemporary feminism that's honestly something I don't think has happened on the podcast so far. I spend so much time talking to feminist artists and activists about the work that they're doing and the feminism that they're like putting out in the world. We don't often um, step back and reflect on just kind of the state of feminist things as they are. So I really enjoyed that opportunity. That's what's coming up in this episode. It is kind of long because I put two conversations in one. And while I did my best to kind of edit them down where needed, I really wanted to share what both of these women had to say. And as I mentioned last episode in Arkansas, I really wanted to share kind of just the conversations themselves, a little less narrated voiceover, um, a little more realness about what it was like on the days that I sat down with them. So you're going to hear from Marty first. I'll let her go ahead and introduce herself. Thanks so much for tuning in. Here's Marty now.
1: Hi, I'm Marty Maxwell Lane. um, And I'm really glad to be doing this. It's exciting. Today, we're in my office in the Fine Arts Building, um, the School of Art, the University of Arkansas, which is where I work. Um, It's my primary job, but one of my many uh, roles in life, I'd say.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about like how long you've been in Arkansas or like the journey that I, from what I know, kind of took you away yeah. from here and brought you back?
1: It's a long story. <laughs> um, so I was born in Fayetteville um, and stayed here until 1999 and I decided that I want to pursue a degree in graphic design. So I went on a road trip across the country um, to pick a school <laughs> and got lucky and decided I wanted to be in Chicago. And then I was looking at the options there. And there was a private art school and there was a public university that was more affordable. And so I applied and I got in. It was the University of Illinois at Chicago and found myself in a really great program. So that was lucky. And so I finished that program. Then I worked for a year in Chicago at a book design studio. that was owned by two women and it was wonderful but it was a really small studio and I just I, I didn't know where I was going to go within that space so I came back to Arkansas for a year um, rebooted and decided I wanted to go to grad school and so I went to North Carolina State University the College of Design in Raleigh and that was a transformative experience everything that I thought I knew was then turned upside down which was disorienting and great Um, And I developed some of my strongest uh, female mentors that I still have to this day. I graduated 10 or 11 years ago. I landed a great teaching job um, at Kent State uh, in Ohio. And I was there for a year. And my husband, he's a chef. And it was just, there were some limitations, I think, for both of us there. Um, And also, it was really far away from family and cold. (laughs) So we were trying to work our way back towards warmer uh, climate and went to Kansas City, taught at the Kansas City Art Institute for four years. And then there was an opening here at the University of Arkansas, and they were looking for someone to help build a BFA program in design. Which I initially left because that program wasn't here. And my interest had really been in pedagogy and graphic design, and it just seemed like an awesome opportunity. So I came here and built the program with some colleagues. Um, definitely a collaborative effort. And here I am five years later. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's great. I, I, part of my fixation with this podcast is hearing stories about how people end up where they are and i personally always love like when where you end up is kind of where you started i like circling back i think is a um i don't know the philosopher me wants to say like one of my favorite temporalities but like what does that mean to anybody (laughs) other than me um so something that came up i think twice already in that You know, you telling that story is the role that women have played as mentors in your career. Could you speak a little bit to um, how important that's been for you? Yeah. I mean,
1: it's been pivotal for me. Um, I don't know if it's like that for everyone or just me or for some people or what, but I'm an only child and both of my parents are only children. So my family network has always been very small and I didn't, besides my mom, I didn't really have a lot of female sort of mentors or Mm -hmm. didn't have that great aunt (laughs) you know I think that finding those relationships in other places have been really important and so I see that in friendships also like and I'm very loyal and um, make sure to invest in that and make time and then professionally I really believe in mentors and also peer mentors so I don't think that mentorship always has to be. There's an expert and a novice, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm really fascinated by the peer um, and how you can support each other. But I have been lucky to have these sort of expert female mentors from these different moments in in my life. And it's been important to me to maintain those relationships and then also i think you know remembering how each one of them has led as a woman or been an academic woman or a designer in different ways and there are so many different approaches to how you can be a woman in these different spaces right so you know one of the owners of the design studio in Chicago uh, was a mom of a young kid. and I had come out of an undergraduate program where kids were not like visible. <laughs> like, the idea of being a professional with a kid was like, what is that? And so you know, this was a long time ago before even he was even thinking about kids. but you know those sort of
0: things stick
1: with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah,
0: I think that something that comes up a lot in the conversations I have, on this podcast, is kind of the people who we've seen do the things we want to do. And then not that we follow in their footsteps, but they, they kind of show us it's possible and are able to do exciting things. And I also love the like peer mentoring, um, which I think is like a buzzword on college campuses. But I recently, yeah, that's um, true. I was listening to the Call Your Girlfriend podcast yes. and they talked about <laughs> peeros, which are your peer heroes. And I have been saying that word as many yes, times as possible. Good. Um, and I think that that sort of cultivating the people who are doing what you're doing and like in your generation and at your same stage, but that you admire so much is so exciting.
1: It's another thing that's been interesting for me about mentorship is now, you know, I always think of myself as like this young person just starting out, but I have tenure now and I'm not all that young. And I'm Mm -hmm. realizing that there are a lot of people now women looking to me and you know I think there's a lot of responsibility in that too remembering those the residue of those mentor relationships that I had when I was younger and how I can be really cognizant of that and making sure that I'm doing everything I can to create space for people and to support them and be proactive in that and not just a responsive mentor Mm -hmm. Um, it's really exciting too.
0: Yeah. Can you maybe give an example or say a little more about what that looks like
1: for you? So lately here at at work, I've been in um, an administrative position for this is my second year going into it. Um, So I'm the associate director of the School of Art. And that wasn't an intentional, it just Mm -hmm. sort of happened. But I'm now the person that, you know, young female faculty or who are interested in having kids or are pregnant you know they come and talk to me and for some of them I'm the first person they tell at work and um you know I think it's really wonderful that people trust me with that but I also want to make sure that I I think you have to first create the space for people to feel comfortable with you right Mm -hmm. and so I try to do that by, again, like making – I have two kids. And so making that visible and not Mm -hmm. just like, oh, I'm going to have to leave early today but not say why. Be like, Mm -hmm. I got to pick up my kid and take him to the dentist. And that's a thing we're going to talk about at work. So I think making it visible and then also just knowing that you can be counted on to help people find the way through. So in academia, it's like – so much red tape and, you know, we didn't have any paid maternity leave until this summer and it's only four weeks. And so how to help people figure out a path forward if if they want to keep uh, on the tenure track or whatever it is within like the system that we have.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's one thing to talk about making people comfortable, like say those words, but it's another to actually understand how to do that and and to understand the situations that people are in. And anticipate the conversations that might need to be had. So I appreciate that sort of like, like anecdote that shows what that looks like. And yeah. just to – sorry to interrupt you. No. Just today,
1: like I told you earlier, it's our work week at school. So mm-hmm. we're getting ready for the students to come back. And we've been doing all this office shuffling. And I realized we had an office – that was sort of extra because which was shocking because we're we're so short on space. But at first I was like, well, this could be a shared room for people that are sharing offices if they need to make conference calls. And I was like, this should be a room for nursing moms and students. And so now because I'm in administration, I just get to do that. Yeah. (laughs) So a grad student now is making a schedule and a sign-up sheet and it's going on the door. So it's, you know, it's nice to be able to
0: see those things and then do them. Yeah. Oh, that's such a like empowering thing. Like what a great (laughs) thing to happen this morning. And to me, that just speaks a lot to how important it is to have all sorts of different people in administrative roles in universities. And I imagine also in corporations, who can just kind of make those decisions and provide resources for people who otherwise have been so neglected. And I can definitely think of many, just many times in my various university experiences, particularly where moms, particularly moms who are students. And now more and more, I'm seeing like dads with young children too, who need that space in the classroom. And I remember being an 18 year old college student and being like, why is there a three year old here? And now as like a more adult (laughs) human being like, it's so great that there's that space and that we can bring more people into this educational environment. So I I love that. That's so great that you'll have that space
1: here. I'm excited. And hopefully it'll become a permanent you know, that's the thing. It's like you find a little opening and you do it and then it's just part of the world.
0: Yeah. So we've spoken about kind of mentorship in terms of the other faculty and maybe like professionals. What about with with students? What does that look like here and how do you foster that environment of like comfort and empowerment for design students as well? Yeah,
1: I think that's a really... Great question. I always, from day one, have said, I'm going to be really honest in the classroom. Some days you're really going to love that, and some days you're not. But you know that you can trust me and that I'm honest. And that sort of ideology, if you will, has served me well over the past decade, and I think really supports my thinking of faculty as mentors. So I really try to build relationships with all all of the students, you know, I think when I was starting out, I probably focused more on the female students, I was really set on helping them find their voice and to speak up and to be confident. And I still do that. Absolutely. But I think now I've become more nuanced in my approach. And there was a book that I read, it was called uh, quiet. Is it like how to embrace introverts in a world that won't stop talking or something like that? And after reading that, it really changed my whole approach to running a critique and running a classroom Mm -hmm. um, because I realized that a lot of these female students that I've been pushing to be very vocal, that could be very painful (laughs) for them, right? And that not everyone needs to be that way. And so that Mm -hmm. book just gave me a different lens of looking for students and how to reach them um, and to help all of them find a way to ha-
0: have a voice quote unquote whatever space that may be yeah i think part of what i'm hearing like when you're giving those examples and talking about changing your critiques is like shifting value systems yeah yes. from something of mode of communication that really emphasizes what to me is like a more kind of masculine, being loud, making sure your voice speaks over other voices and kind of shifting from a way of just wanting to get more female students in the classroom into that mode so that they are heard and then moving away from that into like actually recognizing many different communication styles and personalities in the classroom, which makes sense in a design classroom, which is all about (laughs) um, different modes of communication. I would love to kind of pivot a little bit to talk more about some of like your professional work. I would just love to hear a little bit about some of the projects you've done that really do speak to, I think, some larger social causes. And could you talk about what comes to mind?
1: There's two that I'd like to talk about. One is the political campaign, um, because I think that is an important How I found my way there is an important story about Arkansas. So um, I've become very involved with Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, um, which is a bipartisan group, um, and it's not just Moms, it's everybody. The name is a little unfortunate, but here we are. Um, So it's just people who are interested in gun reform um, and gun sense. And I became interested in them because in – It was 2017, uh, one of the Arkansas state legislatures um, introduced a bill that we've now called the Guns Everywhere Bill, um, and it was Uh, A bill that would allow guns um, basically everywhere, bars, parks, um, and most importantly for me was it removed a clause that allowed universities to opt out of the previous law. So previously, all the schools in Arkansas, the state schools, had said, we're going to opt out. We don't want guns on campus. And the law allowed for that. And in 2017, that changed and they removed that option. So they were forcing us to allow guns in our classrooms and our offices. Um, even at one point, they were going to be required to let them in the campus daycare. Um, we fought against that and got that carve out. But that's how I became involved with Moms Demand Action. At the time, the leader of that was Nicole Clowney, um, and she went on after that to run for a position in the Arkansas State House. And so I worked on her campaign as the designer, that campaign was really important to me. And I'm about to start working on another one. Um, and it's another woman, female candidate, uh, who I really believe in her, her values. So I do a lot of that work and then well, do you have any questions about that before we yeah. talk about the second one. Cause I it's would... a whole other, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't um, want to pivot too far.
0: Yeah. Thanks for the pause. <laughs> I, I was debating if I was going to interrupt you or not. Yeah. Um, I would, well, on the one hand, I would love just for like listeners to hear like what does it mean to design for a campaign? Like what what did you do and what did you make? And I think that's kind of an interesting facet of it. And yes, yeah, so let's just start there. Yeah. Like what does that mean?
1: So, you know, for her it was a it was a position for the Arkansas State House. So it was a state-level position, but it was representing the district which includes the university and includes where I live. And she was Running against another Democrat, um, and it was someone who was really beloved in town. And so early on, we had conversations about, you know, what does this need to look and feel like? You're both Democrats. You're both running a, in a progressive district. You're both progressive. Like, how do we tell your story differently differently? And what do we need to do that? And so we talked about that she had been a lawyer that had worked with children. She was a mom. She was a teacher. She had led this grassroots advocacy. And, you know, at the time, it was also really critical to let people know she was a woman. And so we talked about, do you lead with the first name? Do you lead with the last name? So what we designed was a brand identity. And ultimately, I think the main thing that we wanted to communicate was that, she was approachable, and so we picked. I'm gonna get in the nerdy type weeds for a minute, but we picked a, you know, a humanist type face. So it's something that just really connoted uh, connection and openness. And we did go with red and uh, blue, but we picked hues that felt a little different, a little warmer, a little newer. Um, and it was, there was a lot of white because we wanted it to just feel very open and fresh and reinforcing that welcoming. So I worked with her and her campaign manager. It was very collaborative. It was very back and forth, which was my favorite way to work. So we did mailers and we did uh, yard signs and we did T-shirts and buttons and stickers and Facebook page. And we did a website. And it was my first ever bilingual website, which was really Exciting for me, you know, both just from the technical side of how to get that to function, but also having someone that was committed to not just saying they were interested in supporting all of their constituents, but really were actively trying to communicate with them because we have a huge Latinx population in Northwest Arkansas. So that was great, and that's actually gone on to inform my teaching. Now I in the classroom, I really try to make sure that students understand how to design for bilingual and trilingual audiences. I think the identity of the campaign and the design like really functioned well with the spirit. So it was nice. And she won.
0: Yeah, even better. <laughs> <laughs> Always nice when that happens. That happens too. Um, awesome. <sighs> so can you tell me about the second project yeah. you had in mind then?
1: Um So this is a project that I just wrapped up, um, or I should say are moving into phase two because I feel like I want it to keep going. But, um, four years ago, it's kind of a long story, but I'll try That's to. That's great. No, go um, for it. So four years ago I was on maternity leave with my friend who was also on maternity. Well, not leave. I didn't get leave, but we were pregnant. <laughs> so we were talking, we were having coffee and, um, She's a defense attorney, and she was saying, like, she is seeing – we have a huge Marshallese population in northwest Arkansas. It's the second largest population of Marshallese outside of the Marshall Islands. And she works a lot with that community, and she was saying all of these challenges that she was seeing in the legal system that people – You know, in Northwest Arkansas, the judges and attorneys understand the difference between Marshallese and Latinx, but when you get into more rural areas, they don't, and they don't understand that they're legally allowed to be here. And then also talking about within Northwest Arkansas, all of these issues, just cultural, you know, conflict, sort of, Um, the Marshallese self-incriminating and not understanding that they were admitting to something that they didn't do and not understanding your rights and to search and all of that. And she was like, you know, it'd be great if we just, if they had a wallet card that they could pull out, if they got pulled over or stopped and that could say, you know, I, I'm Marshallese. I have the right to a translator. I would prefer to speak to someone in Marshallese. And I was like, this is totally a design problem. (laughs) Um, and so that kicked off this idea, um, and I was teaching this human-centered design class for the first time, and what other time than the first class to take on this huge community project? But um, <laughs> So I worked with her and an immigration attorney, and this woman, uh, Melissa Lailon, who is um leads Arkansas Coalition of the Marshallese, she's Marshallese herself, and... We started researching the problem, um, and the students worked in teams and dug in to different facets of it. It was really important to me that we didn't say, this is a problem that the Marshallese need to fix, right? Like, it was really both ways. Like, we need to do a lot of educating for the people that live here that are not Marshallese. Like, it's two sides. Um, And so the students talked to a lot of judges, a lot of police. They went and did ride-alongs and lots of, you know, on-the-ground research. And the class wrapped up, but the project wasn't done, right? So... I kept working with a few students that had the strongest project, and over the years, it sort of evolved into me being the creative director. I think is how I would identify my role. Um, And as the students came in and out and graduated, you know, other ones jumped in, and I ended up getting a grant for the project. Just a modest grant; it was just under ten thousand dollars, but it allowed us to actually print all of the materials. And so we just delivered them this week. So there are wallet cards, there are magnets that go on your fridge um, that talk about your Rights to search and seizure. Um, there's materials for judges and new attorneys explaining the Marshallese, um, and it's all bilingual. And something that was sort of interesting about this project, um, you know, when it started and it's gone on so long because it's just the nature of these types of projects, I think, there's been all these different um, issues that have come up in the world that have made us sort of pivot with the project. So at one point, And granted, like police violence has always been a problem, but it became much more visible, um, you know, police shooting people of color. And so then we were like, well, do we want people pulling out a card of their wallet in the car? Like people need their hands like visible. And so then it was like, okay, well, this actually needs to be a document sleeve where the card is in the sleeve and they pull it down from above the. It's the flippy-flappy thing in the car? The uh, sun, sun visor? Flippy-flappy thing. Flippy, flappy thing. <laughs> and then now, you know, we're dealing with all these ice raids, and so we're talking about phase two of the project, the materials living on a website where we can update the information um, to include, because while the the ice raids don't impact the Marshallese directly, it impacts them in that the people don't understand who the Marshallese are. So it's been kind of interesting to see how we have to respond to these, you know, different things that are happening.
0: Yeah. I think that makes so much sense and is one of the hallmarks of grassroots work is like really starting with people's needs and their own um, identities and cultures. I could totally imagine a situation where, you know, a well-meaning group, and this is not your group, but like some group somewhere makes wallet cards for a community that doesn't carry wallets or like something of that um, because of that sort of discrepancy between community practices which is human and beautiful and but something that if you're not in direct conversation with people you wouldn't know about
1: that's why i always say and i didn't write this somebody else said it i don't know who i need to know who to cite but it's you know it's designing with people not for people and that's Mm -hmm. why it was really critical with that whole project that we worked with um the arkansas coalition of marshallese the whole time i mean just back and forth and constantly because Yeah, exactly that.
0: Yeah, I have loved hearing about all of this. And I mean, I've learned a lot about Northwest Arkansas already. I did not know there was a large Marshallese population here. I didn't know about the guns everywhere bill. But I think I can confidently say most of my listeners are not from Arkansas. So (laughs) what do you wish people from other parts of the US knew about Northwest Arkansas?
1: That's a good question. You know, we're growing at such a rapid rate. Part of me, like, doesn't want to reveal the secrets of our beauty. (laughs) Like, it's terrible. Stay away. But no, I think it's really a beautiful place of potential. It's, It's easier to do things here, to try out ideas, to test things, than in some of the other places I've lived. So even though Chicago and Kansas City still have that, Gritty, approachable Midwestern thing. Um, mm-hmm. There's still barriers there, and I think that Northwest Arkansas. There's just so much potential, and it is very progressive in this pretty conservative state. And I think that you know that's not an uncommon thing. But I do think that having this little like progressive space amidst all of that brings people together pretty quickly, and there's a real openness. For people to help each other very collaborative the arts are growing here and uh just incredible rate so yeah just an exciting sort of uh is incubator the right word maybe i don't want to say startup because it's too like <laughs> businessy but yeah. um a play space maybe
0: <laughs> yeah i like play space i think that's great well thanks so much for this conversation yeah thank you Thanks so much to Marty for an amazing conversation. I really loved just like hanging out in her office on campus and being able to chat about what cool work that she's doing. And as I said, during the interview, I just learned so much about who lives in Arkansas and what's going on there. So up next is my conversation with Hannah. As I already mentioned, she's a co-owner of Maxine's Tap Room and just like an all-around badass community member in Fayetteville. So here's our conversation about owning a business, shepherding a community, and being a feminist in 2019. Here's Hannah.
2: Uh, my name is Hannah Withers and I am in Fayetteville, Arkansas, in a historic bar named Maxine's Tap Room that was named after Maxine Miller, who opened this bar in 1950. And uh, after she passed away in 2008, we became friends with her great niece and my husband and I sort of caretake this bar for her. We would not say it's ours, but we work with her family to sort of keep the memory of this place alive.
0: That's so cool. Could you tell me a little bit about who Maxine was and what it took to open a bar in the 50s here? And
2: Maxine ran this bar for almost 60 years. She opened it as a single woman in 1950. Um, She had two husbands throughout her life, neither one of which really had much of anything to do with the bar. She kept it as hers. She borrowed, I think it was $10,000 from her grandparents, maybe her parents, to open the bar and paid them back within the first year. And she was sort of an iconic figure in Fayetteville. This is the second oldest bar in Fayetteville. There are a thousand stories that we hear from so many people that have been here during different evolutionary phases of Maxine's, um, that remember different jukeboxes or different phases of her life. And we hear from a lot of those people often. While this bar was always sort of a casual and accessible place for lots of different types of people, it was always, uh, sort of a beer bar. It was very casual, used to be very smoky when that was still a thing to do in bars. And we wanted to have a bar in Fayetteville that was a little, more adult. We wanted to be able to find classic cocktails that were well done and so we sort of did this throwback to the era that she opened the bar in and started with some well done classic cocktails like Sazerac's and Manhattans and that sort of stuff and it sort of snowballed with this Amazing staff staff that we've had over the last six years into sort of a craft cocktail their their palates have far surpassed mine and um, they're pretty amazing, but we have heard a lot of stories about Maxine we actually never knew her she passed away um, right after we moved to Fayetteville she was a pretty shrewd businesswoman the the beer trays underneath the taps. Uh, were filled with super glue when we moved in here uh, so that the beer overflow couldn't drain down into the cooler. And at the end of the night, she would lay a a bar towel in the trays and she would squeeze them out into pint glasses. And if they wasted a full pint of beer throughout the night, she would make them pay retail for it. She... (laughs) Um, was a huge Elvis fan. Um, she was a gambler. She went to, um, she has a couple different pictures that we have of her in here, of her in different casinos. Um, all of these pictures are either of her or of the era, um, of the street in the era that she opened it in. Um, she kept a baseball bat behind the bar. She had a a famous last call that said you have 10 minutes to drink and get the hell out of here that we have plugged into the payphone in the back uh, so you can pick up the old payphone and hear a soundbite of her her making her last call. We take it very seriously that her name is still on the building and that I think out of the several businesses that my husband and I have created, we, um, we wanted to see them live on after we own them too. And so we consider it an honor to take care of this space for her.
0: That's so cool. I
2: always love the idea of businesses as legacy.
0: And she sounds like an icon. And I'm sure stepping into that iconic space
2: is a lot takes a lot of care. And it seems like that's what you're doing. It's a very special place to us. And we put a lot of thought into the way that we sort of curate the photos that are in here and stories about her and it's special to us we put a lot of thought into it and a lot of time.
0: Yeah. It feels like that just walking in and I'm someone who's never been here and doesn't know much about this space. So it feels that cared for. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Mission accomplished. Yay. (laughs) Uh, I'd love to step back a little farther and just hear about kind of your background in Arkansas. Like, are are you from here? You grew up here. How'd you end up here?
2: I am not from here. I grew up in Denver. I went to school for a very short moment in Washington, D.C., and I left college and moved to the West Coast and Met a guy and we spent a lot of time hitchhiking from Canada to Mexico for several months and lived in Mexico for a hot minute. And my mother is a um Piedmont blues guitar picker. She plays Robert Johnson style blues. And she had played a blues festival in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, which is about an hour from here. It's a tiny tourist town and one of the weirdest, most wonderful places I've ever lived. She had just played a festival there and thought it was a place that I should come and see and so on our travels through the country we stopped one of our first stops was in Eureka Springs and we both had jobs and a place to live within the week and I ended up being stuck there for 15 years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, that's so cool so can you tell me a little bit more about the magic of Eureka Springs and what you ended up doing there?
2: Yeah, I worked for a man named Greg who owned a coffee shop on Center Street called the Cosmic Cup Coffee Shop, and he was from Dallas. This was his dream, sort of his dying wish to open the shop, and he was dying of AIDS when I was working for him. Uh, When he passed away, his parents, Marvin and Sally, sold me for a song, all of his equipment and everything that was in it. I was 20 years old, and I kept it open for about a year. There was a lot about running a business that I did not know anything about. And it was a complete hot mess and also a lovely and really magic time, maybe because of my age, but also because I think for the first time I felt what it felt like to create a space that other people wanted to go to. And um, I did that for a few years. I, Had a couple different iterations of smaller restaurants that we did above Chelsea's, which is our bar that was sort of our living room in our mid-20s. And then my husband and I met and got married almost immediately. And we had both worked in restaurants since our teenage years. That's all we'd ever done, really. And he really wanted to learn how to bake. And so we moved to New York and... Our son was about six months old. It was six months after nine eleven when we moved to New York, and he went to the Culinary Institute and took some intensive classes while I toured around the city with a six-month-old on my back and checked out bakeries and ate croissants, and we came back and built our first commercial kitchen, and we opened a second location here in Fayetteville about five years later. When we first opened Little Bread Company, we were open for about a year And there was a downtown master plan to sort of rehab the entire parking and redo the streets and flower beds and street lamps. We were under construction for about a year and a half. Most of us had planks that went to our front doors, wooden planks that were over, you know, sewers that were old sewer pipes being dug out. And it was super loud. It was very complicated. It was a struggle for all of us on the street for that year and a half. And when the city finished the construction, we wanted to have some sort of a celebration and a ribbon cutting to remind people that we were here and that everything was open and it looked beautiful and that everything was accessible again. And so we started having meetings about how to do that and created an event called the Block Street Block Party. And we decided the best way to get everybody to come to our street was to invite everyone from our community to participate in it. So we created four outdoor stages. We hired local bands that played all day long. Uh, Sunday was a slow sales day f- for most of us. And so we created the Sunday daytime event that went from noon to nine. And Uh, we did that for about eight years and a lot of our businesses have changed on the street and sort of the main crew of people that I started that with had either changed roles or were doing different things or were getting too busy in their businesses to participate. And at the end of the eight years, that event had grown into 90 local bands, 180 local vendors, um, All of our local food trucks, there were probably 16,000 people that attended, which is a lot for a town of 100,000 in the summertime. And it just got too big. So we took a little bit of a break. We actually have an organization that I think we're passing that off to next year. And I hope that it comes back and lives on. But it got to be too much for me to do. And we decided to focus a little bit more in our businesses. I'm a big believer that we need
0: those community ties to bolster and support our ability to bring people together to like to lift everyone to
2: also empower each other to do the things that we need to do i mean it really takes a lot of people to do amazing things and sometimes it takes a lot of people just to get through the day you know lots of non-amazing things that it takes a lot of people to do those things with too
0: yeah and it sounds like through like this belief in community you really become a community organizer, I mean organizing a sixteen thousand attending music festival is a huge endeavor,
2: and again it it was not me alone. Yeah. I mean, we had a lot of volunteers. We have old time friends who have always come and coordinated volunteers and volunteered just because they are on board and excited and I love seeing people get excited about things, and we're constantly pitching new ideas. And we've also had a lot of really good luck. And we consider it a blessing to be able to have a little bit of a platform to lift other people up. And so we do that as often as we can find somebody that's excited about what they're doing.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. I'd kind of just love to know who are some of the badass women in your community here?
2: Oh, there are so many. Uh, Jeannie Holland who was the head of the art department she might be assistant dean she just took sort of a position shift she is an awesome ceramicist an amazing mother I love her family a lot she pulled together a lot of the grants that have recently come through to build an entire new art department for the university that is about to start they're about to start construction which is going to change the landscape of our downtown. There are a lot of great women musicians in our community that I respect. I think it just takes a lot of courage to get up and do something creative in front of a lot of people. And that's something that I didn't think about when I got into small business. I mean, now we live in a world of Yelp where anybody can tell us how we're supposed to be doing our jobs. But I didn't really realize until recently how much courage that takes to put yourself out there and do something that you love. Well. It just puts you in a position where anybody feels the right to critique you. I love Amber Paradin, who started the uh, Little Craft Show, which is sort of our handmade annual market. She's also an amazing abstract painter. I don't know. I have I have a whole list. Molly Clark, who runs Grey Dog Boutique, which is a vintage store. Um, she's found a way to make a living by also traveling part of the year and going to other countries and finding things and making communities with people in other hemispheres and bringing back their stuff to Fayetteville. I know a lot of amazing teachers. I mean, I don't even know where to start.
0: I imagined it was going to be a a big, uh, big question with many, many, many answers. It's a big list. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But the women in my family, you know, my mom uh, was a musician before I was born and she sort of gave that up um, for a time while my brother and I were in school. And when my parents divorced when I was thirteen. She sort of rebuilt that career and she's seventy two and still touring a massive amount of time out of the year. Her hustle is is hardcore and she's good at what she does and she and she owns it and My grandmothers were strong women, and I think I've had an amazing number of aunts who were creative, brilliant people. My godmother, Kathy Metch, who was a principal in the Cherry creek school district, was one of the most magic people that I've ever known, and she was so kind, and she was one of those people that would just make you feel incredibly special just by talking, by her talking to you. I mean, there are a lot of men that have influenced me as well, but I think I learned a lot from my mother and from my family. I have some strong aunts and some strong godparents, and there's a strong community of women musicians that uh, my mother had around her when I was younger, she actually was a founding member of a group called The Mother Fokers in Denver, which were twelve sort of individual women and they 're still going forty years ago my mom's not involved anymore, but there were twelve ten to twelve individual musicians who had their own sort of solo careers, and every year once a year, they would come together for one big concert and choose all these other women to backline different songs and sort of pick their combinations and do things that were out of the box and I that's so cutting edge and brilliant to me looking at how that started in the 70s and and it grew into this enormous thing and they're about to be inducted into the Colorado Musicians Hall of Fame and I just think I I think I got lucky and I lucked into a bunch of people who like to try weird things and see if they stick and find family along the way and I don't know. Here we are. (laughs) I mean,
0: from a totally outside perspective, it seems to just make so much sense. Like we started this conversation about Maxine's legacy and then it turns into a conversation about your family. Like it's like the legacy of the women in your family that you're um, a part of all of these different like uh, ancestries of really strong, powerful women. And And not by choice.
2: I just ended up here, which I'm grateful for.
0: Yeah. But it takes so much work. And I think, um, Something I'm thinking of when you're saying this is there's so much risk and trust that you must have to have to take those chances. It seems like when you're telling those stories, there's so many beautiful things that have happened that rely on a real faith in other people and your own abilities. And could you maybe say a little bit of like, how is that? It just seems to me so many of the things you've done are so feel so brave? And how do you make those choices?
2: I don't think I really think about them very much. I mean, I feel like all of us are just people here. We're trying to do something that we love and um, something that fills us up and feeds our soul and try to do do those things with people that we love and respect. And I think that that is a very human, I think that's something that everybody sort of strives for. And so I don't think about it as a risk. I mean, what, you know, we lost our, our first little bread company in Eureka. We lost in 2008 when the sort of economy bottomed out and it really hit our town. We were a pretty new business. We were only four years old and it was really tough on a drive only 2000 person tourist town in Arkansas in the middle of the Ozark Mountains, Um, not a great economic moment for us as a community at all. And we were so new and so inexperienced. And we lost our home that we built with that one and are so grateful that we had this one open. But I mean, filing for bankruptcy and starting from scratch at 30 whatever years old and starting from scratch with no credit, are we going to be able to buy a house again? Are we going to be able to have the life that we want to have for our kid Um, and sitting there and knowing that the only thing that really mattered is that Ben and I could get through the strain and stress of a situation like that and still love and respect each other. I feel like we sort of had a wake up moment of what really mattered to us. And I think the rest of it, you can't take it with you. I mean, it doesn't matter how many stocks and bonds or what your 401k looks like when you're, you know, when you're dying, none of it is going with you. And it's short. And I, I'm the older that I get, the faster all this time is flying for me. I mean, we I feel like I just had a baby a couple of years ago and we just dropped him at college last week. And the older that we get, the faster this is speeding up. And I just think it's, it's life's too short to worry about it. I mean, I think obviously putting some thought and the more experience that we get making decisions with a little bit, you know, more intelligence or knowledge instead of just the emotion of we've done that too. We've done the emotional. I really want to do this. I know it doesn't make any sense. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I don't we don't regret anything that we've ever done. And so uh, we keep trying more things.
0: I think that's great. Um, is there anything that you want to say about this area or kind of your businesses that we haven't talked about?
2: Um, I think, I think I you know I I got nervous when you emailed me because I didn't I don't have a PhD in gender studies and I know women like Lisa Corgan who um, is is such a brainiac that um, works in that department at the university and so many women here who. I mean, this is what they do. Feminism is what they do for a living and they've studied the history of it and they've studied all these things. And I felt like a little bit of a fraud that I was underqualified to maybe talk about something, knowing some of the women that I do that can really talk about what your podcast is about. And I think it was an added, I think it was an added pressure for me to think about what it was as a feminist. I mean, I have this long list of things that I'm I want to do well. I I want to be a good boss. I want to be a good partner. I want to be a good wife, and I want to be a good mother. And adding another title of feminism to it uh, scared me a little bit. Oh god, how how do I do this one well? I'm I'm not. I started looking up what is feminism on Wikipedia and digging into all of these really basic questions of Am I a feminist? I think I absolutely am a feminist. I've decided. But I mean, I appreciate kind of your
0: vulnerability and sharing that because I think a lot of people even people who listen to this podcast that's called 50 feminist states and people who know me and you know that I study feminism and all of this like get scared to ask questions I think or feel like they everyone feels like they should already know everything and there's no way yeah,
2: it's not possible that's that's a moment of youth I mean I remember how much more I thought I knew when I was 23 and now yes. that I'm in my 40s I'm realizing I don't know anything at all and yeah. everything is there are so many things I don't know. And the more open I get to asking questions about how everything works, the more that I learn.
0: Yeah. And I think I mean, part of why I do this podcast is because I do feel like I have this sort of intellectual knowledge and some embodied like rage about patriarchal society. But I like to go talk to find and talk to the people who are doing the work that I see as necessary. And I think some of that work is owning businesses and organizing communities. Like, I think that's incredibly important work. And I think with so many of the young women coming out of universities, we need more practical education and what it yeah. just takes to do this. And so, I mean, that's why I'm here talking to you. I love that you you mentioned talking to your mother-in-law because she does hold that knowledge of like what it was like to live through 60s and 70s. And yeah. I think we need to do a lot when I say we, I'm mostly probably speaking like myself and my generation, <laughs> um, but a lot of work to just like connect those like ancestries and like really tap into the knowledge bases that exist.
2: And it's not just the historical, I mean, there are so many things that I'm learning in my 40s, like the way that my body is changing and like, I mean, postpartum depression wasn't even something that really people started taking seriously until, a, you know, a couple of decades ago. I mean, there are so many mental health issues and just physical issues and there has always sort of been the shroud of we don't talk about this stuff, whether it's because we're polite. I was lucky. I, I grew up in a household where, you know, we talked about a lot of things, but I mean, my parents still... I remember coming home, learning about the way that the government worked and learning about, you know, how how you vote and what the electoral college is probably in second grade and asking. It was a voting year and asking my mom, you know, who she voted for. And she still had the response of, oh, you don't ever ask anybody that. That's nobody's business. You know, we don't talk about politics and we don't talk about religion and I think, you know, a perimenopause falls into that category for a lot of us. Like there, you know, there are a lot of women who don't have women that are 10 or 20 years older than they are that can say, Oh, let me tell you what this is. Let's go get your hormones checked, girl. Come on. Let's figure, you know, this is a normal thing that nobody talks about. And I think communication is key in every piece of my life. And in work and at home and in everything else and it's something that we don't do necessarily culturally as women and i
0: to me that's just what kind of feminism becomes it's just like recognizing that there are ways historically and societally that women get isolated from each other and it's like rebuilding those connections and communities so that we can share knowledge and empower ourselves and each other i think
2: it's it's hard to do sometimes too. I think that the way that we have these conversations on the internet with each other can be really amazing and really mind opening. And I have you know women who have um, I have women friends who have uh, you know have had hysterectomies or endometriosis that can find groups of women that are like them, and that's a really amazing tool to have. And I think that it also has sort of sharpened our our way that we judge each other or the way that we compete with each other we have this lens that's that's filtered that we talk about our lives through you know social media and all these things and i think it's really easy to look at somebody and think that they have everything or think that they're doing really well when really all of us are doing the same thing as just trying to get through the week you know and and get out unscathed (laughs) with whatever that is and so I, you know, I think that's another part of it that sort of shied me from, it shied me from having conversations with women on the internet is I think it's easy to be competitive or to feel threatened or to see somebody else's successless. and, And that platform of conversation has changed that dynamic a lot.
0: Yeah. And I think, I guess, hopefully, what I want to say is I think feminism at its best actually gives us the resources to understand the more feminine modes of empathizing and knowing each other and forgiving each other and caring for each other. They get lost in our hyper masculine society. But I think a lot of things are done in the name of feminism that are really painful and hurtful to other people. And and that makes it really hard.
2: Absolutely. That was really well said. I know probably none of this fits (laughs) in with the like happy girl stories of like how we move and how we build things. And this is a lot more um, edgy and sort of i don't know it's harder to talk about because i don't fully understand all of it and it's all changing so quickly it is changing but i i think that you're a person who's
0: been bringing your community together for a long time one of many people who's been helping shepherd this community and that does give you deep insight into how it's shifting and even if you know you don't feel like on the pulse of exactly the right words or, or why or what to i usually do figure shifts. it out pretty quickly exactly but sometimes
2: <laughs> you get surprised and uh, yeah, yeah. So
0: awesome. I think that's probably I know time. I'm so sorry. No do not <laughs> apologize. I loved this. This was amazing. <laughs> okay. um, thank you so much. It was
2: really nice to meet you.
0: Thanks so much to Hannah for taking the time to talk with me and thanks again to Marty for the same. I really enjoy these conversations. I hope that you enjoyed listening to them. As always you can find the show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast where you can see all of the episodes and follow some of the work of the amazing feminist activists and artists that we've talked to so far. Next week we'll be in Tennessee, where I spoke to two really amazing women working around reproductive justice and rights for black women in Tennessee. I can't wait for you to hear those conversations. They are powerful and amazing, like all the conversations we share on this podcast. So in the meantime, please subscribe, rate, review us on iTunes. You'll be automatically entered to win the giveaway for some 50 Feminist swag at the end of the season. Thanks so much for listening. I'm so glad you're here with us. Until next time, I'll see you on the road.
2: 50 Feminist Day 50 Feminist Day
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50 slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50 Feminist States. Special thanks to Danielle Signs and Jessica Naria for our theme song. Until next time, Wild Ones, we'll see you on the road.